Well, we're going to continue in our worship this morning as we open the Word of God. Now, you're going to have to bear with me. I prefer the safety of a pulpit sometimes. There's a lot of moving parts here, so I hope I don't knock anything down when my French comes out. So, I will do a little organizing here as I prepare. I don't want to move the phone. Well, as you know, Dan is taking today off, a much-deserved rest. So, with him not preaching, that means you are stuck with me. And in case any of you are thinking about sneaking out the door, I've already requested that the ushers lock the doors, so don't think about it. Well, not really. That was my desire. It was my desire to do that, but it wasn't my will. So, if you feel like you need to leave, feel free to leave, but I pray that you would stay. So, now, let's get serious for a minute. Let's get serious for this whole time that we're together. The last time I preached, oh, probably several months ago, I'd say, we opened up in 1 Peter, and we examined the audience or the recipients of who this epistle or letter was written to. And we, as we examined who Peter was writing to, we discovered that these were persecuted Christians, right? Mostly Jewish converts who were dispersed across all the areas of Judea because of an ongoing and increasing persecution in and around the Jerusalem region. Now, Peter felt the need to reach out to these people because they were struggling, right? And in, those, in, in what we learned through what Peter was teaching, we also put that and applied that to our lives and the difficulties that we have, right? But also, when we, when we become a child of God, we become an alien. And I say that in the sense that we live in this world as an unbelievers. We are part of this world and we are in this world. And I don't know about you, but before I came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, I was in the world up over my head like you would not believe. But the day that the gospel was truly opened to me, my eyes were open, my heart was open to truly believe what was spoken to me by a man who preached the gospel to me during a very difficult time in my life. And at that moment in time, I, I, I had a knowledge of God through my Catholic upbringing. I had a knowledge of who Jesus was more through stories than a reality. But through the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit, my heart was opened to believe not just a story of Jesus, but to believe Jesus. He became a reality to my life, and things changed. It wasn't easy. Coming with saving faith in Christ doesn't mean all of a sudden everything is fabulous and wonderful, right? Nothing but joy in our life. Well, we still have to live the life that we've been given here. But we can find comfort in the fact of knowing that we are not of this world. We're in this world, but we are in Christ Jesus who sustains us and carries us through the life that he has called us to here in the world that he created. Now, as we look at and continue in 1 Peter, at first we looked at one characteristic of his audience. I want to look at the second characteristic that Peter identifies. And it's here in verse 1 and part of verse 2. And I'm going to read that again for you all. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, I know when we opened up 
before I came up here, we read right through verse 5, but there is no way and no chance that I am going to get through verse 5. And you would guys would be storming out the doors if I tried to get all the way through those. So for now, we're going to stop right here at this first part of, of verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. I don't want us to have more than we can chew, right? We don't want to bite off more than we can chew. We want to be able to receive and absorb what, what I'm going to say here now. So, and hopefully, uh, Lord willing, Dan will uh, allow me to preach before you again, and I'll continue with this thought as, uh, as I go here. So, um, Dan, may it be your will, then let it be so. All right, so let's look at that second identifying characteristic given by Peter. Not only were the people aliens, but they were also labeled or called by Peter the chosen or the elect. It depends on what your translation is. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, this is where I want to park. And I want to examine today the implications of the word that Peter uses here. Namely, chosen or elect, as I said, depending on your translation. And foreknowledge of God the Father. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for the word that you have given us. Father, that you speak to us through your word, proclaiming the truths of who you are and what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we examine your word this morning, Lord, that you would open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes to hear and to see and to believe, Lord, what your truth speaks of in scripture. And that goes for myself too, Lord. Teach me today, Lord God. Even more than I think I know, teach me, Father, that I, that I may know you more. Holy Spirit, I pray for you to just pour yourself out on this congregation today. Fill our hearts, Lord, with your presence. Lord, help us to see that you alone are God and that you are with us here today. Father, I pray these things through your Son's name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Beginning with the end of verse 1 and 2, Peter brings up two key doctrines. One, the first one, we just talked about a little bit with the elect or chosen, is the doctrine of election. And that basically says salvation is according to God's will. And the other is the doctrine of the Trinity, which we will not get to today. And that states that God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. With salvation, each one participates and contributes to the salvation of sinners. <clears throat> Excuse me. Could I get some water, please? Um, <clears throat> although it is important to have an understanding of both doctrines, as it is relevant to the purpose and application of what Peter is, is writing here in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, for that matter, I'll only be spending our time together grazing around the edges of election. It's a very deep subject. It takes a lot of study, and you could preach 100 sermons on it. Um, so let's look at why these two doctrines are so important. Why do you think that is? Well, it's right here, right before us. Peter thought it was important enough to write about it in the opening of this letter. And most importantly, thank you, God thought it was important as he included it in his word. And if it's good enough for God, it's good enough for me, Amen. and it should be good enough for you. So he gives us this because it's important for us to have a proper understanding of who we are or who we once were, depending on your eternal position, so that we can have a proper understanding of who God is 
in the enormity of what he has done. It's immeasurable. Completely and totally immeasurable. We cannot put, there is no period at the end of the description of who God is and what he has done. Excuse me. Now, whenever the subject of election is brought up within Christian circles, it can create quite a stir. The doctrine of election is not what is controversial, and that is God determines who will be saved. We see examples of this clearly evidenced in scriptures. I'll give you just one, Ephesians 1, 4. It says, even as he, meaning God, chose us and him before the foundation of the world. It clearly states here that we are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. There's no question about that. Scripture teaches us that. But what has become controversial is how that choice is made. Did God predetermine who would be saved? Or did he know beforehand who would choose him and therefore they became his elect? The first, I believe, is decided by God. And the second is decided by man. Now you might ask, what difference does it make? Well, if you truly have repented of your sins and your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for your salvation, then ultimately nothing, right? It doesn't affect your salvation. But, However, I would argue that it affects how we live our lives in service to God and how we actually see him. Do we actually believe that God is absolutely, completely, and totally sovereign? I believe having a right view of ourselves gives us this right view of God. I believe it affects the strength of our faith and our trust in him especially during difficult times in our lives, such as Peter's going to describe here later on in this first chapter. I also believe that it can affect how or motivate us to, where, to live according to the commands of Scripture, as Peter will continue to encourage us in through chapter 2 and the rest of this letter. Now, moving forward, one of the first two things that come up whenever the subject of election is brought up is, can someone tell me? Calvinism, predestination, right? Calvinism, predestination. Um, I lost my space. Forgive me. Um, give me a second here. Is uh, predestination. So, um, I believe, yes, okay. Strike that, reverse it. Now, moving forward, one of the first things to come up with is election, is, is Calvinism. It's, the most, um, it's almost become a swear word for Christians, right? You've mentioned Calvinism to somebody sometimes, and they get visually and verbally upset. They despise the very thought of Calvinism. They would rather turn from you and curse you and walk away than to hear what anything you would have to say about Calvinism. That's the people that look at this as the, the, the first motivation is that they choose God. Now, if you're like me, and I am one of those, I am, and so are many of you, 
Um, Calvinists. Fact of the matter is, I am a Calvinist. And so are many theologians of the past, many of whom you read, you've studied, you agree with. Um, past, present, and I'm going to go over a few. Martin Luther, I'm sure, is, is one that you've all been made aware of. You've been coming here to Northwest Baptist Church. You know of Martin Luther, especially over this past month when it was, um, we had Reformation Day. And we've learned through our study of the Second London Baptist Confession that um, of the doctrines of grace, right? We're saved by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. You're familiar with those things. That is not any different than what Calvinism teaches, okay? So guys like John Calvin, obviously, yes. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, R.C. Sproul. Who doesn't know R.C. Sproul? How about Paul Washer? And I know everyone knows who this person is. John MacArthur. And yes, if he doesn't mind me saying, even our very own pastor, Dan, would be called, consider himself a Calvinist as many others would. Now, a question we must ask ourselves. Is your faith a faith that was given by God who is the author and perfecter of our faith, or is your faith that a faith of your own that God is building upon? Now, let's be sure I'm not questioning anyone's faith here. Only God knows the heart of every man. But I will tell you this. I believe if you are truly born again, if you've repented and your faith is in the faith that God has given you and is imperfecting in you, then you are a believer. You are saved. No question about it. That's what really matters. Is your Savior Jesus Christ the Lord and is your faith and trust in him? Yes, it is. All right, however, for the sake of understanding and being able to personally take hold of what Peter's saying here, Peter has written in this epistle, I think it's important we at least get our toes wet and have at least a general understanding on the subject. If you don't know what Calvinism is, then we're gonna dabble in here just a little bit. So I'm going to try to give a very brief summary of this doctrine of election in light of Calvinism. <clears throat> Although I fully agree with the doctrine of election, I'm not going to turn this into a deep theological debate. There's not enough time in today or tomorrow or the next month to do that. So, um, but we will look at the five points of Calvinism. <clears throat> As some of you are, are, already know, Calvinism has derived its name from a French reformer named John Calvin who along with a multitude of other reformers gathered together for what is known as the Great Synod or the Synod of Dort in 1618. The purpose of the meeting was not to devise some new doctrine, these doctrines of grace or Calvinism, but they gathered together for the purpose of refuting what was called the five articles of faith <clears throat> as presented to the state of Holland in the form of a remonstrance, which means a protest of the Belgian Confession of Faith in Heidelberg Catechism by the followers of Dutch seminary professor named James Arminius, which is where we get the term Arminianism. Now I'll list the five articles of faith as presented by the Arminian believers, followed by the five points of Calvinism with a very brief description of each one. Each of the five points of Calvinism are in response to and in rejection to the five articles of faith which were ultimately rejected by the Church of Holland and found it to be unbiblical. The acronym TULIP, 
and I'm sure you've heard TULIP. Um, it is a pretty flower, but it, it's an acronym given to us to help us remember what these five doctrines of election or these five points of Calvinism are or these five graces of, of scriptures of being saved by grace. Now, TULIP is obviously T-U-L-I-P. So the first article of faith that I want to talk about is free will or human ability. So this is the first article that was presented by the Arminians. Free will or human ability, which means even though we are by nature sinful, God gives every sinner the ability to repent without interfering with each sinner's freedom or free will. Basically, it means God waits for us to believe and ask for him, him to save us. And the first point of Calvinism to refute that is called total depravity or total inability. That's where we get the T from. Because of the fall of man, the whole man's being <clears throat> has been affected by sin, body, mind, soul, and will. And there is therefore unable to savingly believe in the gospel. So basically, we are so depraved in our sin Right? The scripture tells us that we are dead in our sins, right? And a dead man can't proclaim anything. He can't reach out. He can't cry out to anyone. He's dead. And we see in Genesis 6, 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, that's us, was great on the earth, and that, here we go, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually doesn't draw a very good picture of mankind, does it? Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here's that dead man. Romans 8, 6 and 8. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. We have no power, no authority over the will of God. Second article of faith, conditional election. God, before the foundation of the world, only chose those who he foreknew would freely believe in the gospel. So it was conditional on our decision, which he searched out, the future to find. So God, our sovereign God, who is sovereign and powerful, knows all things, needed to go into the future to see, okay, who's going who's gonna to choose to follow Jesus? And therefore, I'm going to make them my elect. That's conditional election. Second point of Calvinism to refute that is, <clears throat> well, not, let me not get there yet. Unmerited favor, there we go. Unmerited favor or unmerited election. There's our you, T-U. As corrupt and sinful beings, we have no desire to have a relationship with God. I can attest to that when I was growing up. I had no desire to be with God. God got in my way. He's the one who wanted me to not have the fun that I wanted to have. He's the one that wanted to control my life. And I was having nothing to do with that. <clears throat> So I was unable and I had no desire to have a relationship with God. And I was unable to do anything good that was pleasing to him. Why? Because I was pleasing myself. And therefore, unable to choose to believe the gospel. 
and no one is able to believe the gospel on their own. We all need help. Jesus is our helper, right? We need help. Romans 8 tells us that all those who are in the flesh, who's there? Me, I'm in the flesh, cannot please God. I have no way of pleasing God apart from him. Man's salvation doesn't come because we deserve it or from our own ability to choose to repent and believe, but fully dependent on by God's decision to save us and to save who he wills. Romans 9, 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, does it not, does not, it, so then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. God did that, not me. Article 3, universal or general atonement. This is probably the one point of Calvinism that stirs up the most in all of it. Limited or particular atonement. <clears throat> the article of faith states in, in universal and general atonement, Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but does not secure anyone's salvation. It only becomes effective to, for those who choose to believe. Right? So we have this man choosing over God choosing. <clears throat> Christ's sac sacrificial death is available for all. Just, it's just that we need to make the choice to accept it and make it for us. Limited atonement and Calvinism. Christ's atoning work was for the elect of God and not for all men. Jesus paid the penalty for the sin of God's elect, not for the sin of all men. John 17, 9, <clears throat> I am praying for them, and this is Jesus. I am not praying for the world, for those, but for those you have given me, God, for the Father, for those that the Father has given me, for they are yours. And in Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness. Not for all, for many. If it was God's will, Christ's death on the cross and shed blood at Calvary was far more powerful, far more powerful enough for the redemption of all men and for the cleansing of all sin. However, if it were meant for every man, woman, and child, then everyone would be saved. But as we can see from scripture, it was for many, not at all that way. However, not a drop of Christ's blood was wasted. Not a drop of it was spilt or wasted. And just like his word, it accomplished all that the Father determined it to be for. Christ's blood wasn't just spilled for anybody to reject and kick to the side. It was purposeful and intentional for the people that God had in mind for salvation. Article 4. The Holy Spirit can be effectually resisted, meaning man can refuse the Holy Spirit's call and gift for salvation even unto death. We can understand, but also we reject the gospel. 
So this is someone here who's heard the gospel, knows all the promises of God, and in the very end says, you know what? I don't care about heaven. Too bad for you. That we can reject the call, the gift, the offering. In Calvinism, we have the I for tulip, point number four, irresistible grace or efficacious call of the Spirit. Although the outward call to repent and believe can be rejected, we can reject the outward call. Someone can come up to you and preach the gospel and you say, ah, never mind, right? There's a difference, okay? There's a difference between the outward call and an inward call by the Holy Spirit. The inward call by the Holy Spirit to elect cannot be rejected and it always results in conversion. Just like God's word accomplishes all that he sets it out to do, the call to repent and believe by the Holy Spirit accomplishes all that it was sent out to do. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Romans 8, 29, 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here's that word, to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Article five, falling from grace. Falling from grace. Um, although this is not believed by all Arminians, many believe, though, that those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation. By, fall, by failing to maintain their faith. So basically they're saying, you can, you can accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can be washed in the blood of Christ. You can have a right relationship with God, and yet you can lose that salvation because you don't continue to follow God. You don't continue to obey his word. You don't continue to do what the commands of scripture require of us. But the truth is, we don't do those things because we don't truly believe. If we truly believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would not have a life that can fall away or that even gives the appearance of having fallen away or left Christ. Perseverance of the saints. P for tulip. All who are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, and given faith, here it is, by the Spirit, are eternally saved. John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and this is Jesus, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one, that's no one, nothing, nada, nothing, anything at all, will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch him out of the Father's hand. He's greater than our own will. Greater than our own will. Who are we to resist God? Now, I went through a lot of things really fast. Um, didn't really get into a lot of detail. But that is a very brief and limited summary of Calvinism with regards to the doctrine of election. And I mean extremely limited. There's by far more details, teachings, and scriptural support associated with this doctrine. It is something, though, everyone needs to really examine fully 
for themselves and in the scriptures. We have a responsibility as believers to seek out God's word. Things that we hear, to not believe all these different things that we hear from other people, but to see if it's in the scriptures. So we have a call to examine these things for ourselves, not just go, well, I don't agree with that because it just doesn't sound good to me, and off it goes. So I'm just asking us, as a body of believers, to search the scriptures and see if if what I'm saying here is true or if it's just Jeff's doctrine. Um, But I think you'll find the reality and the truth is what I've just shown you here through this doctrine of election. So, with that in mind, let us now go back to uh, 1 Peter and let's look at this Greek word that Peter uses and is translated as foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. This foreknowledge that Peter's using comes from the Greek word prognosis. And its definition is obviously foreknowledge because we see it here. Forethought. And also, here's the big one, pre-arrangement. Pre-arrangement. Now, it's only used in this form twice in Scripture. It's here in verse 2 and in Acts 2.23. And what's interesting is If you turn to Acts 2.23, the person we're going to find speaking this is Peter. This is the words that Peter used. find it interesting that they're both accredited to Peter. So with that in mind, this gives us an opportunity and availability to say, hey, maybe we can understand what Peter's saying in 1 Peter if we look at Acts 2.23. So in Acts, Peter is proclaiming that Christ's death on the cross was not some random act, right? This is the time, at the time of Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit just was poured out on the believers and they were going into the streets and people were hearing them talk in their own language where miracles happened, right? The um, revelation of the Holy Spirit was moving and people were coming to see what was going on. And Peter takes this opportunity. Now, mind you, Peter, who was a fisherman and he was... Quite an ornery man. He was um, belligerent at times, very gruff and, and harsh. So this man who, who was all about defending himself and doing things his own way, he comes out after being filled by the Holy Spirit and he begins preaching to the people that have come. What an audience to come, right? So he says in, in, in verse 22, <clears throat> um, Jesus, the man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. So what is he doing here? Well, as he's preaching, he proclaims or he brings up Old Testament prophecy, a prophecy by the the prophets talking about the spirit coming and a few other things. And then he also talks about who Jesus is, that Jesus is, is <clears throat> attested to you by God. God proclaimed this Jesus, right? And he showed evidence of who this Jesus was through miracles, wonders, and signs. We know that Jesus performed many miracles. He performed many signs and wonders. And in fact, they're not even completely taken account of in the New Testament scriptures because there's too many things to write down about what Jesus has done. Now, 
They, meaning his Jewish hearers, because many of these people were Jewish, right? And then this is the time when Jesus was, was crucified. It's still fresh in their mind. It's not months away or years away. It's still fresh in their mind. So these guys are coming going, hey, what's going on? And Jesus is, is saying that, hey, this was proclaimed by the, by the prophets of old. This Jesus whom you delivered up, it wasn't part of some random act. It wasn't something that just happened because men decided that they didn't like what he had to say, so they decided to crucify him. This was not some act controlled by man or decided by men. It happened because God ordained it to happen before the foundation of the world, not because of us, but because of him. And he's reminding them that this was told of in the Old Testament. This is what was going to happen, and this is what happened, and this is what you did. Not that it was like, well, God just came up with this other plan, and here it is, because Jesus has died, now we've got to do this. This was for ordained before the foundations of the world. And they knew the Old Testament scriptures, and they knew what he was saying. The question is, did they believe? Just as Christ's sacrificial death on the cross was foreordained, God having foreknowledge because he already planned it to happen. Peter uses the same word here, in Acts 23, foreknowledge in the same form, in the same context as he uses in 1 Peter 1. And he uses the word what? Definite plan in Acts 2.23 and foreknowledge. In, Acts, in, in 1 Peter 1, what does he say in 1 Peter 1? In 1 Peter 1, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God. This is the same foreknowledge, not something that God looked through the future, but it was something that God predetermined far before he even created us. <clears throat> he also knew his elect because it was his plan from the beginning, as I just said. It is God who determined who his elect are, as Peter clearly states. If God needed to search the future to see who would actually choose Jesus, which, if you really think about it, means that essentially we are our own elect because we elected ourselves to believe in Jesus. Would not God also have needed to look into the future to see that he would send his only son to die on a cross for us? That doesn't sound very sovereign to me. It sounds like a God who isn't really quite sure what he's doing, so he needs to check himself in the future so that he makes sure he does what he predicted or saw himself doing in the future. God is not a reactive God, meaning his will is not determined by our actions. Our actions are determined by his will. If God's will is subject to anything other than himself, he would not be sovereign and therefore would not be God. God is not subject to time. He created time for us, not for himself. God is always the past, always the present, and always the future. He doesn't transition from one to the next to the other and travel back and forth. He is always everything. He never stops being all things at all time. Same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't need to see the future. He is the future. Amen. We are not the author and 
perfecter of our faith. He's, we're not. Our faith would be a weak faith. In the first light of trouble, I'd be running away as fast as I can, I'll tell you. It says in Hebrews 12, 2, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the author of our faith, meaning he determines our faith. He gives us our faith, and then he builds upon that faith through sanctification, which if I get another chance to preach, we'll get into that <laughs> at another time. But Peter brings, us up, uh, brings up election here because there's no greater encouragement no greater encouragement than knowing that as the saved elect of God, our hope rests on the all-powerful and all-knowing, ever-present sovereign God. Not on anything or any choice or any decision that we've, that we've made that we can second-guess, that we can doubt and say, well, maybe, maybe I didn't do it just right, or maybe I didn't do this. It's important to know that because it's God who gives us our faith and he saves us, we are secure in him, and we don't have to fear to the point where we ever turn from God. In fact, it should drive us closer and closer to him. We should also be excited because of what he has done for us should enable us or should charge us to, to serve him with greater appreciation with a greater love, knowing that even though I was so worthless that God just took me out of the gutter and he lifted me up and he didn't just dust me off, he cleansed me. He put on white robes and says, you are my son. We are sons of God, brothers of Jesus. Not because of anything we can do, but because God in his mercy and his grace chose to save you. You are special in God's eyes. You are special in his sight. He saved you, not just to say that you can have a happy and good life. He saved you for a reason and a purpose. And that purpose and plan is to glorify God. Amen. And we are called to glorify God. So walking in the light of this truth, and it is true, and I do ask you to search the, scripture, uh, the scriptures, um, this will strengthen our faith. It'll strengthen our trust. And it will help us to persevere to the end, right? We are on a race, as, as Paul has said. We're running a race that God has set before us. And he calls us to run the race with endurance. Man, how much more endurance can we have knowing that God is supplying our source? Now, I know it's been a long message. Wow, this has been short for me. This is great. You guys are going to be happy. <clears throat> I know it's been a long message. But um, I want you to listen to a couple of things here, and then uh, we'll continue to move on here. So this is a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Who here doesn't love Charles Spurgeon? Who, okay, let me ask you this. Who loves Charles Spurgeon? Okay, I see some hands. All right, excellent, excellent. Well, this is what he said. He said, whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the word of God as with an iron pen, and there is no getting rid of it. And if we can't get rid of it, we must face it and deal with it. All right? To me, it is one of the sweetest and most blessed truths in the whole of Revelation. And those who are afraid of it are so because they do not understand it. If they could but know that the Lord had chosen them, it would make their hearts dance for joy. Amen. Amen. So, Peter finds this important because 
of what is going on at the time that he wrote this letter. It's important to those people then, and it's important to us now to know that God has saved us, and it's all by him. Now, there's some questions we need to ask ourselves, and we should ask ourselves these questions. If you are trusting in a salvation based on your own faith, how do you know if it's strong enough to sustain you? How do you know? If your faith is based on your own decision, how do you know for sure that you were sincere or humble enough in your decision and are truly saved? If you can be convinced by yourself or convinced by somebody else to trust in Christ, isn't it possible to be convinced to not trust in Christ and to forsake him? Is your faith a faith that was given by God, who is the author and perfecter of our faith? Or is it your faith that is being built upon by God? To be sure, I'm not questioning anyone's faith, as I said earlier. Only God knows the heart of man. But I'll tell you this. I believe if you are truly born again, your faith is the saving faith that God has given you. And it is perfecting in you in this life and will be complete in eternity. Whether you believe God gave you the faith that you have or not, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, God gave it to you. All glory to God in that. So, whatever we do, let us love Christ because he has first loved us. And there's no greater example of that and when he came up his plan for redemption through his son, Jesus Christ, he had us in mind by name. What was the first book ever written? Can anyone tell me what the first book ever written was? Ah, oh, Job, huh? How about the Lamb's Book of Life? Right? God wrote the Lamb's Book of Life before he created And do you know who's in that Lamb's Book of Life? All who believe, all his elect. That was before anything. What was the last book ever read? The Lamb's Book of Life. It was opened up and the names were proclaimed. And do you know who was in that book? Everyone who was in it when it was written. God is so good. Man, is he merciful. The fact that I'm even standing up here is just amazing to me. I'll stop there. I'll start crying. Um, So with that in mind, I I would be remiss to not share with all of you the gospel. Because that's what we are commanded to do. We are, not just me standing up here or Dan standing up here. We're all commanded to share the gospel, right? Go into all the world. Proclaim the gospel. Make disciples of Jesus Christ, right? So I'm going to obey that command. Not because I have to, right? Command is like, oh, I have to do that because it's a command. When you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you do that because you want to do that. Because it glorifies your God. So... What must man do to be saved? This has nothing to do with whether you're Arminian, has nothing to do with whether you're a Calvinist. 
This has to do with what God has determined before the foundations of the world, what we must do to be saved. And as we touched on through the message today, we are sinful wretches. Sinful wretches. And we need a Savior. See, God created us. He created us for a purpose. He created us for His purpose. And He does according to His good pleasure. And He created us for His glory. But what happened is, sin entered in through Adam. He sinned against God. And therefore, this fellowship with God that Adam had, this communion he had, this closeness he had, he walked with him in the garden, it says, was lost. Adam disobeyed God and therefore was separated from God. And ever since that time, man has been doing everything possible to try and close that gap between God. Everything from different forms of religion to crystals and all these other new agey things trying to close that gap that we cannot do as we just talked about. We can do nothing to close that gap. And that's why it's so important to understand that we can do nothing, that we are helpless and hopeless in ourselves. If I was to throw you out of a boat and you didn't know how to swim and I threw you a life jacket, would you grab it? Would you grab it? Well, God has thrown you a life jacket. You are drowning, and he has sent you a life jacket. The only problem is we need to realize that we're drowning so that we'll grab that. And we are drowning. And God throws us that life jacket in that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, who paid a penalty for our sins, the law required perfection. I am imperfect, and I hope you would all say that you're imperfect too, but I know I'm imperfect, and I need a Savior. Because I broke God's law, there's a penalty that's paid. It says the wages of sin is death. The only thing I deserve is not the goodness of God. I deserve the wrath of God, and I deserve the death that he has in store for me. But we don't have to deserve that because God in the riches of his mercy showed us grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And he says, if you repent and believe in my son, Jesus Christ, if you repent and believe that his sacrificial death on the cross and his blood that was poured out on Calvary is for you and that it washes you clean of your sin and and it satisfies the debt that we owe God, then you will be saved. But we need to know the depravity of our minds and our hearts and who we are before we can see the glorious goodness of who God is. Are you a sinner today who hasn't trusted in Christ? If you are, then you're this wretched person and you're drowning. And at some point, you're going to hit the bottom. Maybe today. Could be tomorrow. Could be next week. Could be a month. Don't know. Is it worth not grabbing that life jacket? I don't think so. So if you're sitting here today and you've heard any of this, I know some of it's hard to understand, and you feel convicted, you feel this power coming over you that says, that's me. Oh my goodness, that's me. Cry out to God. I can't sit up here and say, hey, say after me. It's got to be a prayer that comes from you because God is speaking to you. If you hear God speaking to you saying, 
I offer you my son. If you would just cry out to me, do it. It'll be the greatest thing you ever do. Whether you think it was your decision or whether you think it was God's decision, it'll be the greatest decision you ever made. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord. As Dan said earlier, for just the privilege to to stand up here, Lord, before your people whom you love so dearly that you sent your son to suffer a death that was meant for us on the cross, to suffer the shame that was mine to bear, that was ours to bear, that if we would do something so simple as to just cry out to you, Lord God, to save us. You promised to hear that prayer, Father, and you promised to save us. Father, I pray for your word as it was preached, Lord God, that you would speak to those who needed to hear this, that you would maybe give some new information to those that never knew some of the things they heard today. But in all things, Father, I pray that you would not allow us to take these things for granted, that you would not allow the people here to take what I've said for granted or to just automatically accept it as truth, but Lord, that you would drive them to the scriptures, fill them with your spirit, give them the ability to understand and see the truth of your word. And I know, Lord God, that you are faithful in these things and that you will strengthen your people to live like they've never lived before for the praise and the glory of your magnificent name. Lord, I come to you as an ambassador of your son, Jesus Christ, for the purpose of your glory and for the edification of your people. Pour out your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.